Welcome to Appalachian Shine, the official podcast for the Foundation for Appalachian Advancement. And if you're listening to this, then consider yourself a part of the team. Stick around and let's shine a light on all things Appalachia. Welcome to another episode of Appalachian Shine, the official podcast for the Foundation for Appalachian Advancement. Today is December 29th, and we're coming up to the end of 2021. And today, we're joined by Mary Beth Atkins of the Family uh, Crisis Support Services in Norton, Virginia. Mary Beth, thanks for coming on to the show, and uh, we certainly appreciate it. How was your Christmas? My Christmas was great. Um, you know, the weather was a little odd because it was very nice out, and um, but it was good. It was good to have family. You know, we're just in a new, it's just a new world with all the COVID and the pandemic and being around people. And yeah, it's, you know, this is a year two of this. And I'm kind of glad we are seeing the communities come a little bit back to normal. Um, but, you know, it's still a concern. And I know it's, it's probably a, a big concern. This is one of the things I wanted to talk about with what you do with the Family Crisis Support Services. Now, you're the executive director. Um, can you, the, the uh, it's, you started in 1982 from, according to your website. Can you tell us a little bit about your mission statement and um, about the organization and a little bit of the history? Okay, so Family Crisis um, opened its doors in 1982 due to a cry in the community um, from situations of domestic violence and nowhere for women to go, you know, at that time in 1982, you know, it was primarily about women. Um, you know, today we don't, um, discriminate because we see just as many, um, male victims as we do female. Now female is female is prominent. Um, but we do see, um, I mean, we see enough of, uh, male victims now that we actually have our own male victim house. Wow. Okay. I, I, that's yeah. surprising to hear that. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so it was a cry from the community. And so um, there were some people that came together and they worked with the Catholic um, diocese out of Richmond and opened up its first uh, domestic violence shelter. And so um, as the needs in the community um, progressed, um, as far as services, you know, there was a couple things that kind of split off. So one of the founding members was a um, Franciscan nun by the name of Sister Beth Jaspers. And her and Sister Margaret Flynn um, opened up an agency called the Advocate Center. And so the Advocate Center really was an agency um, that just did um, a little bit of anything, just based on um, what um, somebody in the community needed, whether it was um, financial assistance, medication assistance, um, and, and things like that. 
And I tell you about this because it'll come full circle for us. So um, anyway, um, as Family Crisis opened up its doors, um, they operated um, for several years just providing emergency shelter to women of domestic violence. And then um, as needs in the community grew, um, the mission statement of Family Crisis kind of changed because in 1999, what we were seeing is, is there's a connection to, of course, when there's a domestic violence situation, it intersects with homelessness because when they escape and they go into emergency shelter, technically they no longer have a place to live. Right. So in 1999, uh, Family Crisis uh, through uh, DHCD, which is the Department of Housing and Community Development out of Richmond, opened up its first homeless shelter. And it was separate from the domestic violence shelter. And so um, then the, the mission of Family, family Crisis was working with people in the community that were inundated in a crisis situation. So we looked at domestic violence and homelessness as major crisis situations. So, which brings us to now, we now have um, homeless services, domestic violence services, um, and our housing program has completely expanded um, to several services. But also we found that we were working with a lot of people in the region that were um, dealing with poverty, um, you know, living in conditions that were not meant for human habitation. Um, and so what sort of happened was in 2012, um, now we've been, they had been, we've been going along and we were providing the domestic violence, uh, homeless services. And then in 2012, um, I bring you back to the advocate center with the two nuns and one of the nuns became ill. And so, um, through my friendship with them, we were helping them out, um, by it, we for, had their phones forwarded to us. And so they pretty much, they did a lot more with people um, living below poverty, providing food, providing medication assistance, and um, just whatever the needs would be. Um, that was something, there was sort of that being provided by family crisis, but we didn't, we didn't have the funds because that's more of a private funding to provide those services. Okay. Um, we were receiving state funds and federal funds for our domestic violence and um, homeless services. And so those funds um, have a lot of restrictions on them as far as what you can do with them. So it doesn't allow you to buy food. It doesn't allow you for basic necessities. Wow. Okay. okay. Oh. Yeah. So that's like, that's like a whole different kind of, um, that's more why we seek private funds or donations because, you know, most of our uh, domestic violence and housing funds, when someone comes into shelter, we actually help them do housing applications. We help them find apartments and we actually rehouse them. And so when you rehouse somebody, 
um, they could have some barriers from their past, like um, damages or back rent or unpaid utilities or anything. Anything that. messing their credit up that keeps them. Yeah. Yeah. So our funds, our state and federal funds, allow us to get them completely even. So I can pay the back debt to get them so that when they're going into a new housing situation, there's no debt. And we pay for the utility hookups and we pay the deposit on the rent and we pay the first month's rent. And then we kind of, um, through the case management services of when they're out on their own, we kind of like determine how much rental assistance they need the next month. And so we try to taper back as to not enable people, but to have them become self-sufficient. Right. <laughs> you know, one, I will tell you one of the issues that we, we are, we are facing now, you know, here we are um, maybe eight or eight years later coming off of the opioid um, epidemic. Yeah. And so people who have charges um, drug-related charges, um, that prevents, prevents them from a lot of housing options. So they can't get into uh, public housing and they can't get Section 8 vouchers because of this drug charges that stays on the record. And so we, we are seeing that now because you can't house them and you're having to put them in a private rental, but yet if they have felony convictions, it's very hard to get a job, especially if it's felony drug related. Right. And yeah, so that's just, you know, one of the things that we're starting to see now is the fallout from that. So anyway, I say all this because <clears throat> while the funding covers that, we go back to, okay, Yeah, I think we froze up here. Did we freeze up a little bit there? I think we, I think we froze up a little bit. <laughs> That's okay. You, you were telling us about, uh, let's kind of pick can back up. Can you hear up me okay? I can hear you now. Let's, let's pick back up where you left off, where you're saying like, now we're coming full circle from the opioid crisis and you were getting into some of the solutions now that we're working with individuals that have come off of those felony charges or, or, or uh, legal charges. So they continue to face barriers. Um, they can't get into public housing. Um, it's hard for them to obtain jobs with the felony drug related drug distribution charges. And yeah. so those people go into private rentals where they have to maintain the rent, but yet they're not eligible for public housing, which also puts them out of receiving a um, Section 8 voucher, which helps pay rent. Yeah, so it's kind of a catch-22. I mean, it's it's hard to, well, well, I guess for a lot of felons, for no matter what it is, when you get out, it's like you hard to find it, hard to find a job and hard to find a place that anybody would uh, let you rent. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough go. So 
how do you make ends meet? And you certainly don't want to push people back into drugs or crime or, or homelessness. It's kind of, I just want to take a step back a little bit and, and just ask you, um, uh, how long have you been executive director? And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into working with this. So I have actually, January the 1st will be 10 years for me at Family Crisis. Um, my background is um, the Department of Social Services, uh, Child Protective Services, working with families um, in their homes. Um, I graduated from the University of Virginia. Um, I am an Ohio native okay. and graduated from the University of Virginia and uh, have a master's in human services. And, you know, I started out teaching and, and, and when I was teaching, it was like, I was drawn to the kids that the eight hours that they were in school was probably the most positive and influential for them and sneaking food into their bags to take home. So I really started to get this realistic view of um, children that didn't have the luxury or the upbringing that I did. And I was drawn to it. Um, so, you know, I did, I taught and then it kind of led into the Department of Social Services. And I did that for, um, gosh, 18 years before becoming, and, and the thing is, um, for me, it was always about keeping the family together and um, working with families to keep their children in their homes and, um, you know, the choices of lifestyles and, and, and just the family unit. And so, um, you know, as you, as you get older, you, you reach that point where it's time to <laughs> become, to become, um, use your education. Um, and so this job came open and I thought, oh, it's everything, um, comprised under one um, of everything that I've done. You know, it's educating, it's, it's working with families, it's working with children. Um, you know, we see a lot here in Southwest Virginia. Um, you know, I've always, the family unit, there's a, there's just a different, uh, I think, definition of what a family unit is here in Southwest Virginia in the Appalachian region. Yeah. Um, you know, I always told uh, my funders um, in Richmond at the state level that we will never really know the true numbers in homelessness for this re for this region because family lets family in their homes, yeah. couch surfing, uh, they take care of other family members. Um, I will tell you when the pandemic hit, that changed. Uh, we saw more family members being very hesitant because they didn't know where those family members had been um, with the couch surfing here, there, and everywhere. So actually, um, during the first year of the pandemic, we saw a 58% increase in services. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So we never closed our doors. Um we continue to um, work, um, operate daily. We're a 24 hour shelter because, 
you know, you don't really choose the time that you become homeless or um, end up in a domestic situation. So uh, we are a 24 hour shelter. And, um, you know, one of the big things that has occurred for us over um, the past two years, actually um, on the onset of the pandemic, um, that February, we had noticed um, just some odd structural issues here at the shelter, the main shelter. And um, it, it continued to get worse. And then, um, then like the refrigerator in our kitchen was slanted. And so I, yeah. So I had to um, bring some engineers in to figure out what was going on. And so, you know, they've been, in, this is an old coal mining office and um, the top floor's offices, the bottom floor is men's shelter. And then the first, the below that is actually our storage and food pantry and all that. And um, so they came in and um, they have discovered that we have significant structural infrastructure um, failing. Ooh. Um, yeah. Is that fixable so, or are you looking at other locations? Well, it is not, it is fixable, but it is um, more costly to fix, they determined, than to move. Okay. And so um, what we did was we moved the men's shelter out into um, a, a local hotel, which um, is funded under what we call non-congregate shelter. So um, our men's unit is being housed in um, a hotel right now because it just wasn't safe to keep them here. And, um, and this was to prohibit a um, gap in services. We are actually the only men's shelter this side of Roanoke. Oh, which wow. Is, okay. So I have a um, 2,000 uh, square foot serving area, uh, 2,000 square miles um, serving Wise, Scott, Lee, City of Norton, Dickinson, um, and this, that what we consider our serving area, just primary serving area. And when you're that close to, um, you know, the different state lines, you know, we get a lot of um, people coming in from other states. I can just imagine the uncertainty of someone that's maybe from say Withville that has these issues and has problems and then has to go all the way down to Norton, Virginia and with no friends, no family. And just, just that uncertainty has to be terrifying. As they yeah. try to seek help and then try to, when they, when they're ready to leave and rehabilitate and do whatever, it's like going back to your other community or whatever community. And again, not having a, a safety net that um, after, after rehabbing or whatever they're, you know, whatever the circumstance they find themselves in, that's got to be a bit terrifying and daunting just to seek the help. Well, well, and you know, in this region, you know, everyone is always under the assumption that, uh, well, you know, people just drive here or drive there and like, well, Uber, well, you know, I hate to tell you, Uber doesn't exist in this region. <laughs> no. Um, you know, I mean, th there's such a, there's such a misconcept that we have all these resources and that's the thing. We don't, 
We are the resource. You have one transit system that requires 48 hours notice that serves this area. And it's only between nine and five. And I think a lot of people don't realize that we're in a part of the country that, yeah, you, you don't have these services. You don't have food delivery from Walmart. A lot of Walmart, you can't even pull up and pick up your groceries in a lot of places. And um, we are the resources. We are the pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Like if you're listening to the show, you are a resource. And a lot of people don't understand that. But, but it, it's a curse and a blessing at the same time. Right. Um, and the and, thing and, is, with Walmart, there's not enough people that can pass a drug test to work at Walmart. That's a shame. You're right. Um, I did want to ask you another, que uh, another question here about your, you have so many different services. You've talked about the, the homelessness and, and the men's, uh, which shocked me, uh, the battered women and the opioid uh, you know, uh, issues. With so many different services that you offer, can you tell us a little bit about the team that you guys have there? It's, um, you probably have a, you have to have a pretty good support team to be able to function with all of these in the, all these areas. Well, and let me tell you this. I also have two thrift stores, but they're not. I read about that. Yeah. Okay. But so here's the fun thing about the thrift stores. So initially when I came on board, we had, we had the thrift stores um, and, you know, they were open to the public and people could actually come in and um, get a voucher and get free clothing for those that needed it, a winter coat, jacket, shoes, or whatever. And I just remember, um, you know, cause I make my rounds and I was up at the shopping center and um, I saw this teenage girl walk around and she had that blue piece of paper. She was filling her voucher. And, I, and, and then there were other people in the store shopping and I thought, wow. That's, you know, that kind of makes her stand out. There's got to be a better way. Yeah. So, so now it's just like they can go in and shop and um, they use a card just like they're everybody else. Um, but as we have expanded, <laughs> I now have the two thrift stores and then I have an entire warehouse where people come to fill their vouchers. And the vouchers are important to us because what we do is we assign a value to the voucher. And so we take, like they fill out this little piece of paper and then they can go and get what they need. But with every grant that I receive, there is a percentage. Um, I've never had one that's more than 20%, but you have to match. So you have to come up with a way to match your grant. And so I do it by the vouchers that we provide for free clothing to the community. Okay. So, okay. so you know, that's why we always say, you know, when people donate their clothing and stuff to us, um, we have a donation bin. The importance of that is really, you know, they're thinking, oh, I'm just donating this for people or whatever. But it's the importance of the fact that the more I apply for to provide services in this community, the higher my percentage is in matching the grant money. That's, um, okay, that's great. Yeah. So, so how, how many people do you have working with you in different 
different services. Like I meant, you have like child counselors and um, I do. counselors for federal. I have 24 staff and um, I, you know, I have domestic violence advocates who actually, I have one in each courthouse that um, is there as a support system and walks them through protective orders, stands with them in court, um, does uh, hospital accompaniment, um, counseling accompaniment. I do have a child counselor here. Um, I have people that work specifically just with the shelter people. I have what they call transition houses. So I have two transition houses. Um, the first one opened up three years ago. And so what transition is, is somebody that comes into the homeless shelter that we think is a good fit for transition. They're you know, gonna have a tough time getting housed or maybe it's a domestic violence person who needs more time to heal um, than you know, just automatically coming here, finding housing and moving out. But they need that longer period of up to maybe two years. So they can live in these houses with no rent and no utilities, but they have to be working towards something, whether it is doing a GED. We have, we have GED that comes into the homes, whether it's job training, whether it's online um, college, whether it's working a job, we provide daycare in those homes. Oh, wow. um, yeah. So, so we have the transition program. That is just an amazing program that we have been, um, that we just initiated. Yeah. Um, now one of the things I've noticed since COVID hit is articles like nationwide, we've seen um, domestic violence go up everywhere, whether it's against children, battered women. Can you give us some insight out into how, have we seen a, a rise of that since COVID here in central Appalachia? Um, have the numbers gone up to like match the nation averages or more? More. Why More. is that the case? What? Well, I think, I think there's, we, I think that we have a lot of stressors um, more so than the bigger areas. Um, you have trans, you have lack of transportation. You have um, people who can't get jobs. You have um, people who need food. And the thing is, where there has been all this supplementation of, you know, money from the government um, during the pandemic, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, and, and this is a, this is personal. This is a personal opinion. One of the things that we were, had to work really hard on early on was, you know, a lot of homeless people don't file taxes. So when stimulus checks came, so we had to make a priority so that people who were homeless and domestic violence were applying for these stimulus checks. Okay. There was a big push for that. So early on, you hand somebody who is in a homeless shelter $1,200 and they either have a drug history or a history of alcoholism or, you know, have made choices that have landed them here, 
and you hand them twelve hundred dollars. Yeah. And and the thing is, I I I wish, I wish I could. I saw some good, you know. I saw some that, you know, cash the checks, and we're going to use it for for when they moved out or for getting things when they moved out or, um, but, but I also had big screen TVs being shipped to the homeless shelter. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, so there was a lot of, I, I just, I don't know. There was a lot of, I mean, some of them went on binges. I mean, you hand an alcoholic $1,200. Yeah. What do you think they're going to do? Yeah. Right. Or, or a drug addict, you know, I mean, it's very common. I mean, I can't tell you how many people, how many women, not just women, but how many people that we work with that are on Medicaid. Okay. Um, have prescriptions for different things, aches and pains or whatever, but that's a way they pay their bills is selling the drugs. There's no, there's, and the thing is, I mean, I just remember a specific case, this one lady, she had gone to the doctor and she was here and she was new and she, um, she was new here as a, um, domestic violence and case. And she was here with her children and she had a doctor's appointment that morning. And she came back to the shelter after she had filled the prescription. And I want to say that she received, um, naproxen, which was just a muscle relaxer. Okay. And DSS had come that afternoon to, um, do a check-in visit because there had been a report of domestic violence in the home, which is why they were checking on her here, knowing she was at the shelter and they did a pill count. Oh yeah. What? Guess what? She had four, but she didn't know, she didn't know that when she, when we rehoused her or when we were going to help her, that the financial assistance was there. She literally was selling that medication. It was her responsibility to sell that medication that she got to pay rent and the power. So it's not that she needed a muscle relaxer. It was, he had her selling, he was selling it so that they could pay bills. And that's a way of life. And so, you know, when you have all this, you have the stressors of not being able to pay your bills. You have the stressors of providing food, um, you know, so there's a lot of tension in the homes and domestic situations going on. But even through the pandemic, where there's been a lot of like, you know, they've upped food stamps, they've provided, you know, stimulus money, they've done all this stuff. And you think it would have helped situations. But for many, it's only exacerbated it. I mean, they have just not used it appropriately which has led to bigger problems. Yeah. Now, you um, you mentioned you uh, were from Ohio. You know, these are situations that are, I'd say, a lot more common than most of us see around here. 
you know, um, and I, you know, I saw some of that in a, you know, unfortunately when I was growing up, not in my home, but in the community around where we, where we lived, because uh, when I was young, there was a flood that came through and destroyed everything we had. And, you know, we had to start over in a, in a very rough neighborhood, a trailer park. And um, you got to see another side of life that you, don't, that you just didn't see, you know? And so for a few years while we were kind of getting all of our eggs in a row, what we, you know, and moved, we, uh, you know, I saw some of those things, but a lot of this you don't see. I lived in Cincinnati for a few years and I worked there and in a city, you actually, there's a homeless problem or homeless people. You see these things They're on your way to work or on your way to a ball game. You see these things here in central Appalachia, you don't see a homeless problem. And I, I guess the thing I, I wanted to ask was, I don't know if you can disclose this number, but how many homeless people do you work with, say, monthly or yearly that, that come so, to you? Oh, I, I mean, I can definitely tell you. Um, so currently right now in shelter, and um, I have 74. I used to average three to 400 a year. Um, now I'm, I've, I've doubled that since and the pandemic. Probably, and that's probably just a, a drop in the bucket to what the real problem is. Because you said a lot of families got to take, take other family members. Well, and, and, and here in the mountains, um, you have, I mean, like when we were trying, when we just, for a while there, we were receiving food from, um, a harvest bank. And so we were driving our U-Haul to Duffield, picking up food, but we knew like in one area of Appalachia, the, I mean, there's a whole community in the mountains. And so we took food to them. We've offered them the vaccination. Um, we, I mean, there are some people that live in the mountains and, and, you know, you know, I'm very thankful that the weather has been as warm as it has. But as soon as it gets cold again, that's when we see it. And I think it would be shocking for people to to realize the amount of people here that don't have um, power, um, that don't have water. I mean, I think people would be shocked or don't have food. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and 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 while you may not see, I think I think the Appalachian region or the Lenawisco, which is the area that I serve, right? They're seeing it now. I don't know what the difference is. Um, that they're more visual. Um, and I think one of well, I can say there's a couple things. We now have a 24-hour laundromat. So they'll stay in the laundromat and people see that. Um, and before you never saw that because there wasn't a 24-hour laundromat or somewhere that was really open 24 hours other than like Walmart at the time or something like that. Yeah, and when but it's 15 I, degrees, that's dangerous for people to be living in. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, you know, I really just don't think it's been it, you know, like people didn't really, people still don't think we have homeless here. It's amazing. As these, as this becomes more obvious and prevalent in, in, uh, in the communities going forward, I'd love to have you back on to talk about what other solutions that, that can work alongside what you do that, that um, government and communities can do to, to alleviate this and help rehab people, educate people and help them have a better life. No one wants to see people living out, especially with children. Yeah. And I, I will tell you one thing I really, really like to stress on this right now um, is we are starting, we have just started a program in October um, and it comes after, um, so the governor of Virginia did that program, the rent mortgage relief program. Right. And so, um, we applied for it back upon the onset of the pandemic. And, um, we started out with $150,000 and we could help pay any mortgage or rent to anyone that was affected by COVID. And I will tell you during the nine months that we offered that program, this little agency did $1.3 million. Wow. So now the program has changed and we started it November the 1st. And so we're trying to get them the message out there, but it's not mortgage anymore, but it's the rent relief program. And so if anyone is affected by uh, COVID and they can't pay their rent or there's a barrier to um, like going to work or something, this they need to call Family Crisis Support Services for this RRP program. And we also have a Virginia eviction program. So anyone that is having trouble making their rent payment or um, has an issue with their car which would prohibit them from going to work. I mean, we can evaluate the situation and do an application and help assist so that we can keep people on their feet and you know, going to work and providing for their families and not falling behind on their rent. So this is gonna be a huge resource for this community and the surrounding areas going forward here, uh, 2022. So, you know, we're encouraging if, if you're, if something's going on, please call us. How can people get in touch with you? And if, if the, and also those that are listening, if they want to visit you online or, or call like, or social media, how can they get in touch with you and, uh, and make donations or, or what items do you need? How, how can the community help you out do what you need to do? Food, food or monetary, because um, we can't keep up with the people in shelter providing food. You know, it's just a constant um, need. It's, you know, I don't know what it's like to be hungry. I mean, I really don't, but I've seen hunger. And so, um, you know, and if, if it's someone that's far away, they will, we, we take Walmart gift cards or financial so that we can use it to buy milk. They pair things that go quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, the, uh, we are, are, I will tell you, we're in the process of redoing our website, but it's there. Um, it's the worst website ever. 
it'll tell you a little bit, but we just got a grant to redo the website. But with everything that we deal with and just being a staff of 24, that's the least of my worries. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's family www.family-crisis.org. We also are um, have a Facebook page that that seems to reach a lot of people. Um, and that is just under Family Crisis Support Services, Inc., INC. And, um, you know, I have someone that, you know, is available on that webpage 24-7. Um, you know, I, I, food, hygiene items. Um, you know, we're operating at a hotel that, um, you know, what was once all on one location and we have to provide them with food and keep them fed. Um, and then, you know, the domestic violence shelter is a separate place. And then we have, you know, a safe house somewhere else. And so, so my staff is just in multiple places. Um, but the, the need right now, I, I would have to say is, and even pillows. So, you know, uh, we're- where are the thrift stores at that people could bring these items and drop off or donate? Or... So my one thrift store is located in the Norton shop, the Virginia Kentucky shopping center, which is um, where rural King is going in. And um, the, the VA hospital, the VA uh, doctor's clinic is there in little Caesar. So I'm in that shopping center okay. um, on us 58. And then my second uh, thrift store is um, in Clintwood across from the courthouse. And then my warehouse is on Kentucky Avenue where the old Lions Club building used to be. That is okay. um, our, also, and you know, our phone number, anybody can call us anytime um, and we can, you know, assist them where to go or where to donate. Um, and that number is 276-679-7240. Well, Mary Beth, I'm so glad uh, that, that you uh, decided to do this with us today so we can kind of get the word out of what you're doing. I imagine that the holidays are probably a hectic time with staff and everybody trying to keep up and with so many of the, the need growing and going into 2022. So, um, you know, hopefully everybody will, will uh, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, feel free and share this with friends and family or uh, we'll link it up on the Internet so you can put a link on your on your social media page. So people can listen to this discussion and, and uh, learn how they can help here in Central Appalachia with uh, the the you know some very unfortunate people that that need help and you don't realize how blessed we all are until we see this and, and you know and, and a lot of this we just don't see right in front of us and and when we do it's it's heart wrenching especially with children you know women matter women uh, and children. you know and I think the trend now you know we have twenty one children in shelter. For Christmas yeah. this year, which was really difficult. But then you have the elderly. Those are the two populations that just hurt my heart. And veterans. I mean, I just. Yeah, there shouldn't be a veteran almost in this country. There really should. I mean, uh, you know, my personal take, I'll share a little personal opinion, too. We don't get I try to not get too personal on some of these, you know, because we're a nonprofit as well. But, you know, we we as a country, we spend all this money, especially with COVID. Everybody gets a free vaccine. We're sending out vaccines around the world and all this money going out to help. And yet um, we see, you know, women with children that are, they're single and battered going out using like the equivalent of food stamps today. 
and they have to buy as much bulk as they can for their children and they're not buying healthier foods. We're not putting an emphasis on a healthier lifestyle and, you know, building up your immune system as, you know, I mean, if we spent half as much as we did on promoting even vaccines, which we, you know, I mean, I've been vaccinated, right? I mean, we, you know, it's some people do and some don't, and that's fine. I don't, I don't get into that debate and argument, but um, when you see people like that, that can't even have to go bulk and came in to afford the healthier things to, for their children to teach them a better lifestyle. Um, it really puts life into perspective. Um, you know, all that money we spend and we have, we have homeless people. We have people that aren't trained, people that need services like counseling and, and, and so forth. And, you know, that, that kind of hits a personal note with me because both my older sisters are teachers as well. You said you were a teacher. And I lost one to COVID um, last year. And uh, the other sister, uh, she, she teaches learning disabled children. And she sees a lot of these challenges with families like you were talking about. And the best time of their day is at school. And she lost her husband to COVID. Uh, three weeks after we lost our sister. So we've really had a tumultuous year with this. And um, you see these, you know, these, these children that are out there that, that need, you know, counseling. And, and my other sister who passed, she was one of our original founders of this organization. She would take kids out into the hallway right next to the gym at Richlands Middle School that were melting down and having issues. And she would just sit down with them, pull them out of class, sit down with them and just listen to them talk. Let them cry it out. Let them use her as a shoulder and uh you know it was we need more services like that not just in schools but like what you offer and um you know so folks if you're listening to that today keep, keep in mind there are a lot of people that need need this assistance and we are a community that helps and we're forgiving people um so people deserve second chances we all deserve second chances so even some of these folks who have made mistakes um let's show them our better angels let's let's put it that way and uh, they do and, want to be. I've yeah. seen so many successes, you know. And we need to show our better angels just as individuals, even if it's, you know, I don't buy that $5 cup of coffee at Starbucks today and I go online and donate it. You know, I can do without the coffee one day and yeah. every $5 adds up. You know, I mean, it's just little things like that. So, so we are blessed. So, you know, it's good to pay things forward. Um, and, uh, but I, but I certainly thank you for your time. And I would love to have you come back as, as the, you know, the things change going forward and, and kind of maybe talk about some other solutions from the community that maybe your ideas, because I know you've been doing this a long enough time that I'm sure you've got a, do, a dozen ideas that maybe sometimes fall on deaf ears in the community. But that's one part of what we want to do is create that discussion amongst the community and, um, you know, make, make Central Appalachia, you know, the place we should be and the better place we that we are, but maybe in some places we just aren't yet. Right. Well, Mary Beth Atkins, thanks so much. Uh, everybody, uh, make sure you visit her website and um, there's a donate button online there. So make sure you um, hear this, this holiday season. Let's, let's pay a five or $10 blessing of, of our own for, Hey, thanks for your time. I certainly appreciate it. Thank you.